I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. Today I'm joined by a modern day warrior, retired RCMP Sergeant Major Seb Lavoie, who DM'd me the rather intriguing message, I'm about to change the face of leadership and policing in the country. Do you want the scoop? Seb, welcome to the Silver Core Podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Wow. So for the listeners, and you've been doing a few podcasts recently, I've been watching the progression over the last couple of years of the podcast that you've been doing, you've got a very interesting background. You've probably told it a large number of times now, but would you like to give a quick thumbnail just so the listeners have an idea of who you are? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so I'm Seb Lavoie. I, um, retired, recently retired from the RCMP after 20 years. I spent the majority of that in, um, tactical units, um, either in a covert capacity or on the lower mainland emergency response team, which is a full-time uh, tactical unit here in, in Canada, in BC. It's now referred to as the integrated emergency response team because <clears throat> there, there are a few municipal departments that are a part of it. And um, I spent 13 years on the team, seven years as a team leader. 2019 moved on to become the divisional sergeant major for the province of British Columbia and retired two and a half years later. Wow. On top, on top of my, uh, of as, as far as I was going to go. Wow. <laughs> so very storied career. Mm -hmm. And you know, some people might look at this and say, this guy must have horseshoes. Look at this. He, he goes to depot and I think you were stationed in Tofino mm -hmm. to begin with. Mm -hmm. Beautiful place. Do you surf? I do not. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I do not. I, I had, uh, you know, I tried while I was there and um, I had a near drowning experience. And and really, to be honest, we, we just didn't have the time at the time. Mm. The numbers just weren't conducive to us having the ability to kind of go out and really enjoy the outdoors. It took me years to go back there and really look at it and go, man, what have I done? Near drowning experience. Was that mm -hmm. just swimming or out there no, surfing? No, surfing. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it can. I uh, got a few of those actually. I, I have another one diving and one surfing. So, really? Yeah. I've had a couple, uh, near drowning experiences and it's not quite what most people, it's not how you would imagine a drowning experience. When you actually start to drown, it's actually rather relaxing. <laughs> it's there, there's, I don't want to say panic mm -hmm. about it. Maybe there is, um, uh, organized, um, energy to try and stay afloat and not go under, but once the oxygen starts to deplete and it feels like anyways, that you're inhaling the water, um, things get a little bit calmer. I don't know if you had the same experience. I wasn't quite that close. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. Thankfully. Well, I guess where I was going with that was, well, some people might say that you have horseshoes because mm -hmm. you're deployed in these great places and you've had a very storied career in some very interesting, 
deployments. I look at this as something that you've strove for, that you've worked very hard for. And while there may be an element of luck somewhere along the way, uh, that's only because preparation and all the prior planning that you put together kind of fell into place. And now as a retired Sergeant Major, you have started a new company, Raven Strategic. Can you tell me about this? Yeah, correct. Uh, this is a, evidently a work in progress uh, now, but um, what it is now and sort of the bulk of what I'm doing is uh, leadership sort of there's, I have three modules, so three different modules. So one of them is a leadership introspection, and this is very, very recent here. Right. One of them is essentially a leadership introspection where we go in, whether it's a, uh, in a police environment or in a corporate environment, and essentially use my experience in, in dealing with critical incidents where consequences are dire and how the, you know, the, the leadership is held to the fire, so to speak, all along the way as they are developing to go and assist other leaders in looking inwards in, in, instead of when assessing their own leadership, instead of looking out and deflecting and disabling and, and having an ego. So what we are doing is basically what can you do today to make your leadership better mm. without, without waiting for anybody to inject on, in your world and, and provide you with some tools, right? Very cool. Yeah. And, and so that's one part. I also very, very, uh, sort of passionate about anything that has to do with combatives and, uh, uh you know, uh, combative tactics for those that don't know, obviously, uh, police defensive tactics or, or, or martial arts, so to speak, mm -hmm. but in the context specifically uh, of whatever, um, business or police force or unit we're I'm dealing with. So that's one of the parts that I simply kept because I just love doing it. Well, you've been doing that since what, three years old? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long, long time. Yeah. Three years old and you got into, and you started martial arts or was it jujitsu immediately at three? No, I started, I started martial arts when I was three and I was traditional martial arts, you know, and, and for everybody's pleasure, it was Kung Fu. Right. right. So, <laughs> Hey, there you go. Hey, Nothing wrong with that. No, absolutely. It was a, it was a, it was a step in and, and, um, it, you know, it taught me a, a bunch of valuable lessons that I carried over uh, with me al mm. along the, along the journey and eventually sort of went into more of the Muay Thai stand up striking and it eventually ended up in Jiu Jitsu, which was about 2007. Okay. So in 2007, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu became my primary focus. Right. Um, why was that? Was that because of Hoist Gracie and all the, uh, hundred percent it yeah. was. Yeah. I mean, in 93, evidently when UFC started, we actually got to see what truly worked mm. and what didn't. And it was no longer theoretical. Uh, before that, there was a ton of theoretical acts to grind about every single, you know, style and who, who was going to beat who, and everything was just essentially opinions. Right. That was when, uh, Ikido ran King because he sure. was the gal was on the big screen, right? Yeah. And, and to be honest, he was pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't deny. He's, he's a weirdo, I mean, but. <laughs> he is definitely an interesting individual, but I can't deny. I probably watched every one of his videos up until a certain point. 900 times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rewind, pause. How did he do that move? Yeah. I, 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 I was a big Seagal fan myself as well. Yeah. 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 Favorite movie? I would say probably above the law. Yeah. Um, that was his 
first one, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it yeah. was. Yeah. And then uh, I really liked, um, what's the one with the twins again, Jamaican twins. On Deadly uh, Ground. On Deadly, no, no, um, no. Oh no, Hard to Kill. Hard to Kill. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So good. Everybody want Go Heaven, nobody want Dead. That one? <laughs> so good. <laughs> Anyways, we digress a little I bit. I like you already. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah. So with the martial arts background, I'd had a little bit of martial arts as well. I did Kilkushin karate as a kid and I hated it. Mm-hmm. I've talked to other people who got into that and they absolutely loved it. Maybe it was my mindset. Maybe it was the group I was with, but I, I wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, later on, I got into, uh, our niece and, uh, jujitsu and I did some Aikido and because of the Stanley Seagal stuff and, uh, some Muay Thai. And I found a great deal of value to, um, the stand-up work and the uh, physical conditioning, the cardio work and all the rest for, um, uh, the Muay Thai. And I, I really enjoyed the Arnis actually. It was, um, uh, something I did for, for quite some time, but there were lessons that people can learn in martial arts that are very applicable to policing and applicable to business. Is that where you're drawing some of your, uh, your leadership training or are you primarily leaning on what you learned through, uh, your career with the RCMP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my leadership journey started long before that. There was, there was a stint in the military and then it rolled right into, you know, being at the academy where I was in charge of my troop and it rolled into leading use of force programs, you know, for the West coast. And then it, it just, so there was, there's a long kind of tracking history there, but you are absolutely correct when you're saying that uh, martial arts have the, 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 the crossover, so to speak, is, um, are undeniable, mm-hmm. right? And, and, um, but in, in terms of the environment or setting up an environment, like that is critical for, for any gym or martial arts studio. And we see it over and over again, how, uh, this is being failed and, and, and the people that are going in to attempt a martial arts or to, you know, to, to, to do what everybody else is doing that seems to be so great and then they have a bad experience or a negative experience. The mm. next thing you know, it turns them off forever, martial arts, right? So right. as studio, as martial arts studio owners, which I'm one of them, um, we have a great responsibility in, in, in representing the, the martial arts world and whatever style that we are teaching um, and be the ambassador and know that if somebody comes to you and they're treating in a, in a, they're received in a, welcomed in a family, family environment mm-hmm. with the respect and all these other things, along with the professional, um, instructions, eventually if they move on, they go somewhere else, they carry that along with them versus this is a wrap. I'm, you know, I've tried it, didn't like it done. Right. One well, you, and done. You talk about respect yeah. and some of these things are just fundamental core values that a person's mother should have taught them as a mm-hmm. youngster but perhaps not everybody has that. The, that is one of the places where martial arts can really, uh, help leaders I've found is in instilling a, a code of ethics and some fundamental values that are shared amongst the community. Uh, the physical conditioning is a big part of that mm-hmm. for the, the mental resiliency mm-hmm. as well as your physical con- uh, resiliency. Um, Your studio. Tell me a little bit about that. Where I didn't realize, I know you had a, a gym for about eight years, wasn't it? Do you still have that gym? Two. Yeah. 
two gyms. I had two, yeah. I had two CrossFit gyms, a Sheepdog CrossFit and Dog's Den CrossFit, both, okay. of, both of which I'm no longer owner uh, owner of, of but mm. I still coach at Sheepdog on the Sundays. It's in Port Coquitlam. My, my martial arts studio is called Ascension Martial Arts, and it's also in Port Coquitlam. And um, I was going somewhere with that um, in line with what you were saying there. What was it now? Mental yeah. resiliency? Yeah, the resiliency piece. Th thank you. Uh, yeah, the resiliency piece, I mean, uh, highly underrated. Like we know that adversity adds to the resiliency bank. Like w adversity in a controlled fashion either creates post-traumatic growth hmm. or it creates post-traumatic stress injury or, or occupational stress injury in the case of, prof of a professional setting. And so what we have is safety, so no real risk for harm aside from you know, the odd very mm. rare injury that, that, that can happen anywhere in soccer or baseball or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what you have is adversity. You spar, you know, especially in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you, you, you get the sparring in and, and when you start as a white belt, you know, you're pretty much everybody's punching bag and it is safe. Right. It is safe, but you are not winning, right? right? And so it's difficult, especially if you're somebody that's generally very successful and you're generally very successful quickly at mm. things that you do, or you've been in the same field for many, many years, you're a subject matter expert, and now you get to test something that's completely out of comfort, and next thing you know, you're not winning, not winning, not winning as you're progressing. And then you start getting little wins here and there, and you you know, it's, it's really um, humbling, mm. and, and that's a critical, that's a critical piece. Um, it's really humbling, but it also shows you that when you're having a really bad day on the mats, maybe two hours later you're back and, and it's the greatest day. And it's weird because they're the same day. Yes. Right? It, what it, it was, I think it was E.H. Chapin, he said, out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. Of the course. most massive characters are seared with scars. And perhaps, perhaps that can be a very accurate statement. And sometimes some people just don't get up from, from the scars and they have a difficult time rebounding, having those small wins, having that little light at the end of the tunnel. It's probably why people golf actually, right? <laughs> Same sort of thing. You get that one good shot and then you suffer for the next, for the rest of the course, whacking the ball everywhere, but you need those little successive wins in order to build that, that mental resiliency. Mm -hmm. now, now you built, if I'm not mistaken, um, sort of standing on the shoulders of giants and using cumulative work that's out there, but you've built a mental resiliency program yourself, didn't you? That is correct. Yeah. It's called uh, leadership through critical circumstances. And, um, you know, it, it, um, evolved greatly over the years, but essentially what it was to begin with was, um, a program to re, uh, to support our memberships and to support our police officers going through critical incidents, whether it was shootings or, you know, use of force, major use of force, or even some of the things that are a byproduct of life. Mm. And so it could be, you know, cause the way I like to sort of the analogy I make is imagine having a bucket and every single drop that you put in there, whether it's administrative stress or marital problems or problems with with the kids or financial problems. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the office and there's a caustic work environment or a caustic culture. You have this, you have that, and it keeps on going until it, mm -hmm. until it's full. And now you have any sort of incident, especially in the critical incident realm and boom, you're overflowing, right? Right. So our job was to essentially 
poke holes through that bucket in any means necessary. Poke the holes so that the water would flow out mm -hmm. and, and the water level would stay low so that we could send our people out to do the tough work that they have to do and then bring them back because guess what? Next week, in two weeks, in three weeks, there's this other call and this other call. And we're talking about a team that's full-time that has hundreds and hundreds of operation a year. Mm -hmm. So our guys are not going anywhere, right? So it's, so that's essentially how this started. So I've heard, and you can correct me if, uh, if you've heard otherwise, but I've heard that, let's say the stress of getting married, the stress of like what would otherwise be viewed as a positive stress will have a very similar physiological response on the body. So whether somebody's looking at an individual who's constantly dealing with negative stresses or negative stresses, which everybody's going to have to one degree or another, uh, combined with the positive stresses, all of that needs to be, to be emptied from the bucket, so to speak. Stress is stress. The body really doesn't make a big difference. And I can even add to that and say somebody that trains really, really hard on the physical realm adds to the stress as well. Interesting. So and it is interesting because it's also an outlet. Right. Right. So which one of the greater goods, which one is it for you and how are you perceiving it? So for example, if we're going back just to kind of unpack that a little bit, if we're talking about say, and I'm not a psychologist, so bear with sure. me here, but you know, as part of my research, I've, 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 um, linked up with uh, the Chicago police department psychological unit and some of the work they had done and, uh, and much, much smarter people than me along the way as part of the research project. So, uh, but yeah, when we're looking at, uh, stress, even positive stress, or if, if it's even a thing, it's stress. And mm -hmm. the reason why you're considering it positive is because there's a marriage in the end, right? you know, and, 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 and that's the, the outcome. Mm -hmm. So now we're, we're outcome focused. So we're out, there's a, a little bit of outcome bias, but the stress that leads into the marriage isn't positive. Right. It's a positive event, but there's the stress is still the stress. It still takes a toll on you. Right. Interesting. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of semantics, I guess, but ultimately the only reason why the stress is, it'd be the same as saying, you know, we're going to get, you're going to get into a fight and, um, it will go. All you need to know is that it will go your way. And when mm -hmm. you finish, you win. Mm -hmm. So, so, so the stress of the encounter is that positive because you're winning, you know? Right. So it's a, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit of a, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a twisted thought process, right? Like it kind of is. And the mm -hmm. stress of a fight mm -hmm. I've always found is typically the anticipation or I should say probably always the anticipation of the fight. The fight itself is never a stressful thing. It's you're in it, you're in it and you act and you react and you work in a way that you've either been trained or that something that comes instinctually, but the anticipation of that event is a very stressful thing for a lot of people. And then the aftermath of that and how you mentally frame that event, was that a positive event? Is it socially acceptable? Is it accepted by my supervisors, by my, my crew around me, or am I now looked at as a black sheep? And I've seen from the limited research that I've done, when we talk about critical incident stress and you talk about, um, PTSD and these different things, it's that mental mind frame that I've seen people be able to walk away from exact same incidents with very different outcomes. Is yeah. Yeah. And I would say, I would say, um, you know, in support of that and what compounds their ability to do that is also 
what was their resilience bank at the time of the incident and what kind of adversity have they gone through mm -hmm. through life before getting there. So, because that also will dictate how one person will react and how the other person will react. So those are compounding, compounding things. Right. Have mindset, mind, mindset, mind frame, understand their, their purpose and, you know, all the other factors that play into how they're going to react to the event and how positive it is, but also what was the ability to sustain this level of stress to begin with, mm -hmm. right? So, so the two kind of mesh together. So it's a very interesting, uh, yeah, that, that is interesting because mm -hmm. when you bring up what has the individual been through ahead of time? Now, mm -hmm. some people can go through something, they can get beaten down, they can get that little bit of a win, they can reframe that situation in their mind, and then they can start building their resiliencies. Other people get beaten down, beaten down, beaten down, and they never can get that mindset right. And consequently, two people can have the same adversity coming up to a certain point and have two different mental resiliencies. How would you, how would you coach your team? How would you suggest to others to really enhance their, their mental resiliency? Well, I'll just speak to my, I'll speak to my guys, for example, like we used a lot of positive reframing, right? Because one of the issues that, that we know is humans are negatively biased, right? Mm -hmm. And we are. And the reason why we are is because evidently we're coming out of a cave and we're not looking left and right and we're getting eaten, right? As, mm -hmm. as, as, uh, you know, in the old days, so to speak. Um, and, um, and, and it's easy. And if you look, um, just to make a little segue, if you look at a, say a, a, an MMA world champ, for example, like an absolute superstar or even yeah. a boxer or anybody that really excels in their field, yes. their ability to shut down the voices is slim to none, right? So, so it's really hard to emulate because what they get the same, they get the same, you know, you're, you're an imposter, you know, you should eventually you'll be, you'll be exposed and people are going to know who, you know, that you're not as good as they think you are and all these other things, right. but they really, really will quiet those voices down when other people just don't have that ability and the voices will become louder and louder and louder and louder mm -hmm. until it actually mutes their own. Right. So one of the things that I like to do, that's actually quite, quite easy. And I've spoken to this with a bunch of different podcasts, but it's basically, um, have them listening to positive messaging, but that th those positive messages, they have to have an impact emotionally. They can't just be like, okay, you are going to, um, process information with your cerebral, with your head. It's more about, can you feel this message? Right. So in the context of my guys, for example, I used video videos that were say set in a tactical context, mm -hmm. right. Or in a military style context or in a police, you know, special operation type context. But the key messaging was done by motivational speaker, right? Mm -hmm. So they would, they would essentially at the beginning of each block, I would play, you know, a four five, six minute video. And my goal was not to change their life by playing this one video. My goal was for them to understand how it can positively impact their day and their shift so that they get to do it on their own at home. So for me, when I'm cleaning the house, when I'm doing things, chores uh, around the house or whatever, I'm not listening to music. I'm listening to motivational videos set in a context that's conducive to me having an emotional reaction. And I just blast them right very interesting and so what you do and what you find quickly is that i'm sleeping in bed at night and i will wake up reciting certain things you know luck is the last dying wish of those who believe that winning can happen by accident you know, like, <laughs> and all these things and and your brain continues to process the information and what i also tell them to do is to do it in the morning because in the morning when you wake up 
what happens? You listen to a song, you have it in your head all day. Well, now is the time to front load your, you know, your, your frontal cortex and your emotional side and your subconscious mind uh, uh, with positive messaging. And, and, and it's crazy how effectively it works. Now, the problem is because humans are inherently negatively biased, we tend to go back there. So what, right. ha- so what happens is oftentimes people will do it for a while and they'd be like, oh, I felt really great. I felt like I was, you know, able to do things that I normally would have been more apprehensive about or I was able to public uh, public speak or I was able to present or do this or lead a call or whatever the case may be. Right. And then they're like, oh, well, that worked. You know, it's over. No, it's not. Because over time, what will happen is the voices will become louder and louder and louder. So what I do is every time I have downtime, I just front load, you know, jam pack my brain and my, my subconscious mind with these key messaging and it never goes back there, if it makes any sense. Oh, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Now, you brought up a ton of things in that little short span. I wrote a couple things down so my ADHD mind doesn't <laughs> run off in different directions. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things when you're talking about that, the, the motivational, the positive imagery, the positive messaging, one of the biggest things I've heard people say is, oh, it's a, it's a short-term thing. It wears off. And you know what? So is washing. So showering, why not do that every day? Right. I mean, it's a routine that you have to get into. And if you're not always doing it, like what you say and keeping on top of it, then you will have diminishing returns. And that's the disabler, right? And the Mm. disabler in all of us, I'm going to disable my own wellness. I'm going to disable my own ability to be better. I'm going to disable, uh, no, it's, you know, empower ourselves to do it. So yeah, understand that if you stop doing it, it will stop working. But what else do you have to do? Mm-hmm. You don't have to listen to Metallica. Well, you do, but you, you know, <laughs> at some point you yes. can, you can switch it up and have, and have, um, a, a, you know, a, a motivational video go out and, and really reinforces that key positive messaging. What's interesting with that too is. Just like martial arts and just how difficult it is to get certain people to train mm. despite the data that shows that it's absolutely necessary for their own either professional endeavor or whatever the case may be, it is equally as hard to get somebody to listen to a four-minute video after I've had this conversation with so many people because they just don't want to even see if it could possibly be right. That's how deep the disabler runs. Right? Why do you think that is? It, it is it is completely asinine. Yeah, we we as humans have, I I believe, more propensity to self sabotage than any other species, mm. because we have the ability to process so much cognitive information. Like, how do we actually self sabotage to the point of if I said to you, "Give me three minutes of your time, and I will prove to you that what I'm saying is real." Mm-hmm. What if I said to a police officer? Come to the mats and I will teach you that your level of competence is currently sits at the unknown incompetence, which means that you don't know what you don't know. And in three and a half minutes, I'm going to show you that your life is in danger if you don't do something about your, the ability that you have to use a force in a controlled fashion. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, to jump on that. Yeah. But that's not the case. But most people don't. That's not the case. Right. Well, most people don't want to have their inadequacies pointed out. hundred percent. And so the, 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 one of the, the course that I have, the, the, the introspective leader course is exactly about that. This is a transformational day for your leadership. We are going to look long and hard inside. There is nobody else responsible. There's nobody else to look at for, for rescue. It's all about going down and deep. Very cool. You know? 
Very cool. Yeah. So you mentioned something and I did a bit of research going into this as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you mentioned the word imposter mm -hmm. and in my research, I was listening to our uh, local police chief here in Delta. You had a chat with him mm -hmm. and one of the things that you brought up was you actually were promoted to a leadership position and then promoted from there to an even higher leadership position. I think you had, was it like not direct control, but about 500 people that were under, is that a correct number? No. So I, I, I essentially went from having 24 people reporting to me to right. overseeing, being broadly responsible for 8,200 employees in the division, right? Now, you're absolutely right. There's a the span of control. We know what the span of control is, right? Sure, about, about five people. Right. So you have yeah. to have your leaders underneath and that's how decentralized command works. But in, in terms of the, the image and in terms of the, my ability to reach and connect, I had to be able to do that with basically 8,200 people. Right. That was my job to be um, an inspirational leader, so to speak. Um, and I mean, it, this wasn't a task that was handed out to me. No, this you took was, that upon this yourself. was a, this was an opportunity you, right. to do it right. I, you know, I could have, I could have cruised through the position for two years, but. But I think you mentioned in that interview that you felt like an imposter when you were first put into that. Can you speak about that? Because yeah. I don't think it's an uncommon thing for most people when they're trying something new. 100%. To say, like, who am I? Mm -hmm. Who am I to be able to do this opposed to somebody else who might have greater accolades. Sure. Well, you know, to begin with understanding that, um, a tactical team leader such as me is held to the fire every single day. So we bring our accountability with us everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. We don't need other people to, to, you know, to make us accountable for our actions. So for me, being in the unconscious incompetence is, is a very, very rare thing. I mm -hmm. generally always know that I don't know anything about something. I just right. don't know specifically what those things are, Right. but I will know who to speak to. So as I like to tell my guys, know what you don't know and know who knows what you don't know, or mm -hmm. at the very least, you know, who you could speak to, to find out what you don't know. So for me, when I moved on to an administrative position, so to speak, um, from being a tactical team leader, which was also an administrative position, mm -hmm. let's call a spade a spade for the last two years of my career, I was in the command post and sure. doing mostly, um, enabling of my guys doing the work on the ground, which mm -hmm. they did fantastic work. But, um, but when I moved to a, a, a truly administrative position at 30,000 foot, you know, cause I was now dealing with the assistant commissioner, the deputy commissioner, and the commanding officer of the division, which was very different from, and also dealing with Ottawa and, mm -hmm. and the commissioner of the RCMP and, and having face-to-face -face meetings and doing presentations and these types of things. It was such a broad, and it was such a, you know, it, it was so vastly different from what I was used to and comfortable with mm. that the first time they put the ranks on my shoulders, I was like, you don't know anything. You don't own the job. You don't own this job yet. You're not ready for this rank, but now you have it, mm -hmm. right? So there was a temporary, there was a, there was a period there where definitely I felt you have the ranks on your shoulders, but um, you, you don't know what you're doing. So for me, the, 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 sort of the defense mechanism and what that led me to want to do is you are going to earn this rank and you're going to start right now mm. because having a rank on your shoulder, um, is, is a privilege. Mm -hmm. It's a privilege. You now have a, a, the ability to affect the collective positively and mm. negatively. And 
if if you're if you're not prepared for the responsibility that comes along with that and you're in for yourself the collective is taking a back seat everybody's paying for that shortcoming mm. and um and 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 so yeah what it did for me is just it was extra motivation the bridge was cut behind me so to speak right mm-hmm. i just i just had to go all out and try to make the best out of the experience that i had to cross it over to where i was going and it took no time to figure out how that was going to work so some people will say, fake it till you make it when you're in there, pretend like you have it, but you took a different approach and you said, okay, I've, I've got the stripes on my shoulder now and I'm going to really earn them. I'm really going to own it, make it my own. And for better or worse, as I look back, I can't say it was for a lack of trying. No question. That's, That's a good way to do it. Unquestionably controlling, you know, what was within my sphere of influence and, um, and, and really I believe all I could ask myself was work as hard as I possibly could. Right. And I would never look back and say, you, you missed an opportunity to really give it your all yeah. and you failed miserably. It, it might've been, you failed miserably, but you tried everything you possibly could. So. Right. Yeah. Well, as I think back, so my father was Vancouver police. My grandfather never met him. He was Vancouver police as well. Actually, he's one of the ones that this company is named after. He was Silver Armino, VPD detective, uh, and Cornelius Bader, my other grandfather was an entrepreneur. I took the silver, I took the core, put them together. Beautiful name. Um, but my father, he was VPD and he was on their very first ERT and then he was in charge of it for, uh, for some time. And, uh, consequently we would have most of the team over in the house and I got to see the different people involved and over the period of time, see how the stresses of work can start affecting people. And one, he's uh, passed away about a year ago, but, um, uh, got into the bottle pretty heavy. Another fellow, um, resigned, took himself off the team, took himself out of policing altogether, moved up north a bit and ended up taking his own life. Um, everybody kind of deals with things differently. And I'd look at how my father would deal with things and how anger would come out in certain ways when in hindsight, looking back, what I would view as normal behavior was, was very, very different. Um, I think in the very early days of the ERT there, um, the mental conditioning aspect of it was confined to, uh, the warrior mindset as opposed to the mental resiliency. When did that whole resiliency piece start to really take hold that, that you could see? The, the real question is when did we lose it? Mm. You know, when you're looking at warrior culture and not to compare say ERT with the samurais, but sure. we'll, we'll use the samurais for example, right? Sure. A lot of the, a lot of the pillars of resiliency were already within their mindset. You know, they had a sense, a higher purpose. There was a social aspect to it. There was the physical aspect to it. There was a spiritual aspect to it and the emotional side. And, and they were, you know, they brought all those things together as well. Those are the pillars of resiliency, right? Right. And so what ended up happening, I, I think over, over the course of whatever centuries, millenniums, whatever the case may be, um, we, we have lost the bigger picture and it became a, a, a sort of a it sort of became a one dimensional approach to problem solving. Right. Mm. And, uh, when I, when I think of my beginnings on the team, so now it would have been in 2000, 
2007 or whatever. At the time, the old school, you know, Earth guys were still having, they had a, a death grip on, sure. on the team in terms of case. Some of them were still in, in position of leadership. Uh, definitely uh, one, of the, one of them was at the helm of the team mm -hmm. at the time. And um, I remember vividly, you know, going to a hostage rescue and actually, you know, conducting it with, 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 two or three of the other guys and uh and when one of the uh supervisor asked hey, should we give the guy some recognition for this or whatever he's like wow that's their job right no. that was kind of the mentality but i think reinforcing that purpose and hey guys this was you know a really tough call that we sent you to uh you did a fantastic job and here's some recognition so now there's a positive attachment with this and your sense of purpose is increased and all these other things so they all feed into each other right mm. and uh there was always on the earth side, just like there is on the military side, um, a strong importance given to sort of being tough, mm -hmm. right? And uh, being tough is much more to skin deep. Being, Hugely. Being tough is sometimes having the ability to say, this is too much for me, or how do I get better at this, or what can I do better here, and, and show some vulnerability. Vulner vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Mixing up my two languages, sure. two of which I don't speak officially. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but you know, and so my thing has always been focus on what you can do to be better all around. And you'll never have to project an image of toughness. You will just be tough. Mm -hmm. And generally, people don't try to overcompensate as they have something. Right. Which ties right into why police officers should be good at controlling suspects on the ground or or even you know uh, being able to sustain an assault standing up and be able to to to, to react appropriately mm -hmm. do all those things and have a certain level of stress resistance to some of those events so that they never feel the need to overcompensate for the things that they're insecure in right if that makes any sense so well, I, it makes a lot of sense yeah so for me I, sorry i went on a bit of a segue here no, no. but but for me um it's a very different game now. I think over the course of the last, I would say probably, I'd say five to 10 years and uh, as more of this newer generation has, has started coming through and there's a recognition organizationally, not just from the RCMP, but from a variety of different organizations are all important, the, the, you know, the, the importance of mental wellness and emotional wellness and, um, and it's bleeding, it's bleeding into everything and it mm -hmm. should. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I think that now we're doing a much, much better job. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. But we're doing, especially, uh, and I'm speaking about the team here. Right. Not, not necessarily, uh, you know, painting with a with a broad brush here. Right. But just the team. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I think there's no going backwards now ever, because we've had we've had plenty of our guys go do some incredible things that you would have thought years ago would. have definitely definitely benched a bunch of guys for a long long time mm -hmm. and the prospect of speaking you know i'm, I'm thinking about the gentleman you mentioned that took his own life mm. like the prospect of speaking about those things back in the day would have been you know oh a sacrilege right like it was what are you doing upon. just drink another drink you know like right well 100%. like i say one of them i Oh, uh, you know what? I won't, I won't say the name. I won't say the nickname, but very heavy into the drink. But this fellow, he said, um, 
I remember he was at the, uh, the kitchen table talking about how he would start shivering and convulsing violently as he started to drive over the bridge and he'd break down into tears and he didn't know why. And this is as he's driving over the bridge to go into work. And the incident that he was involved with, uh, wasn't even one that I think people would look at and say, well, are you kidding me? Is that it? But the fact that the balance of life and death did stand was held within his hands. And the fact that he didn't react in a way that he thought he would react or that he figured he should have reacted, uh, really didn't sit well with him. And on top of that, I didn't get the sense that there's a heck of a lot of support from management in, in the whole process. And I, I, I remember him telling the story and I remember him going through it and, and looking at it and the, I was very young at the time. And thinking, well, that's not a, that's not what a tough person does, right? And cause that was, that was how I was raised and that's how everybody kind of, kind of thought. Maybe he doesn't belong on the team. When in fact, the guy was a perfect fit for the team had he had these mental resiliencies in place and had a support network for being able to reframe that incident in a way that was positive. Yeah. As I, um, as I completed a research project, when I first moved to the commanding officer's office, um, I asked for permission to go around and interview people that were involved in critical use of force and have the conversations about what was done with them following the incident. I mean, pre, post and pre, during and post incident, you know, just to see mm -hmm. where the balls were dropped so that we could obviously pick up some slack and, and tighten up some things. And I was absolutely amazed the, the vast majority of our members weren't actually um, adversely afflicted by whatever incident they actually responded to. It was the way they were treated after. Mm -hmm. So when people come into policing and come into these first responder job, they have an expectation of some of the things they're going to see. Therefore, there's a preloading of the information and we are, and the punch you expect is better than the punch you don't expect. Right. So then they would go to work on the daily with an acceptance and, and that this may be the case today. I prepare for this. I have, you know, this training and that training. And, and, and so, but what they didn't prepare for is to get abandoned mm -hmm. along the way. And unfortunately, it's not always, it doesn't, it's not always an organizational thing where everybody dropped the ball, but sometimes it's just that one person, right? Mm -hmm. It's that one person that didn't quite get it right and was going through a clinical process at the time at which the person that was actually uh, a part of the incident is hypersensitive following an incident. And they should be, mm. you know, cause it's abnormal. Like we're sending our people to abnormal situations right. and then, and then, and then, you know, uh, uh, something was said or something was done or an attitude was taken and, 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 and the person felt completely um, betrayal, be mm. a, a betrayal, like a, a strong sense of betrayal of being betrayed by the organization. Um, and then, it, you know, it's interesting too, because, and I tell this to member, members all the time, it's like the force treated me like crap. Well, we've had this conversation for say uh, two hours and, and you've mentioned this person 900 times, right? <laughs> Is this person representing the force? To a certain extent they do, but they are not the force. They are not the organization. They're right. one person. That was your disabler and he really caused some severe damage, right? So the idea, yeah, it's just, it's tough, right? Because if you have a line of say 10 people that have the ability to impact somebody's career or their lives really mm -hmm. and the lives of their family, all it take 
is one. It just takes totally. one. So they have to be in unison. They have to be in sync. They have to be squared away with the processes. They have to be. They have to be prioritizing wellness over over anything else and recovery over anything else. And they all have to be on the same page. And if they don't, somebody will pay. A lot of the retired police officers that, uh, not all, but I, I see a lot of them that I've dealt with will have a resentment or a, an anti-establishment attitude after getting out of policing as they look back because of those one or two people that, yeah, it's a very good analogy that you put forward. The issue that you also brought up was having the, um, the confidence of being able to deal with people in the street in a way where you now no longer have to overuse force or uh, overexert your role. And I'd quite often hear the same thing come up. Well, how come we're hiring these people who've never been in a fight before? How come we're, uh, prioritizing university education over top of perhaps some street smarts? And I, and I see the argument on both sides. I see the fact that some compassion and a different approach can quite often have a much better outcome than perhaps going in with a heavy hand. And I also see the side when the heavy hand needs to be applied. Um, but that process of hiring, and I know you've heard it before, and then people will get into positions of leadership and leadership will start to promote other people with similar experiences, life values, interests that they have. And you start getting a top heavy establishment with certain ethos and outlooks. And if you get that one or two negative individuals in there, it can start to sour an organization rather quickly. And I think that's where some of this media reporting has been, uh, at one point the RCMP, I mean, you, you couldn't paint a black mark on them. And for a long time now, uh, all you hear about in the news is just really, really negative things. And when we first started talking here, you brought up um, a, a recent one and you did a, a post on Instagram as well. Um, did you want to talk about, I, I think I brought up a couple things here, but why don't you just step off on whichever one you would okay. like to. Okay. If I, if I get lost, you'll have to bring me back on track here. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, but I'll start with one thing to begin with. We know that group problem solving and effective problem solving is better when you have diversity of thoughts, mm -hmm. right? So if you surround yourself with like-minded individual, it looks like we're doing the right thing. But it's not always the case. Now, don't get me wrong. Evidently, you could say, well, if you're on an ERT team, the majority of the guys are like-minded individuals. Sure. They're, they're heart-driven go-getters that want to go out and do things and they want to step up. But amongst those personalities, there's a wide spectrum of different variety, right? And, mm. and, it's, and so you can have um, so, some... Um, similarities, but having diversity of thoughts, especially is critical to, mm. for effective group problem solving. And there was a spring, uh, I believe a um, Stanford university or one of the university in the States, I can never remember which one, um, had done basically a, a, an exercise where they had a, a strong baseline with a collective IQ much higher than another group that had diversity of thoughts, mm. you know, by, by way of backgrounds and, and ethnicities and all these other things. Right. And what they end up doing is they end up 
being able to figure, being able to come up to the conclusion that the group that had a lower combined IQ was still better at effectively problem solve the, the dilemmas that they were given. Because there was, oh, you know, I've dealt with this in my job and I've, I've got this as an experience and, you know, versus we're all thinking the same. Because if you're, if you're group problem solving with people that are all like you, you're essentially alone. You're in an echo chamber. Yeah, yeah, you are. And so it's, that's a very interesting uh, dichotomy, so to speak. But, uh, but uh, yeah, to go on with, you know, the media and, 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 um, and hopefully you haven't started something that we can't put back in the box here. <laughs> but, um, you know... <laughs> Call, call me, call me naive. Call me um, idealist. Uh, I, I don't know, um, but I do believe that there is an, an ethical, a professional, and um, ethical professional, and, and just outright um, responsibility to um, to 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 stop the divide. Right? Is it, we're not what we are seeing currently with with. The polarization is is has the potential to be extremely self harming for this for this uh, mm-hmm. species, and the prospect of us getting so bad to a point where we self destruct isn't that far off. And and call me fatalistic or anything, but it is it is what it is. If we keep going down those rabbit holes where we're getting further and further and further apart, and we're Nobody is unable to bring people back together so that we can pull in the same direction. We're going to have some serious problems as a species. And, and we are not even talking about imagine electricity going off. We're not, we saw it with COVID, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't take, it didn't take 24 hours to find out that we couldn't work together. Everybody just went running in their, you know, every directions. Got to get toilet paper. Yeah. And when I say everyone, obviously right. there's always the people that are there to assist others and we, sure. we, we love them and we sh- we're lucky to have them. But, um, you know, it had, it had an incredible impact and we're talking about a, a, a virus with a survival rate that far exceeded anything, not to downplay it, but you know, that far exceeded sure. anything that we, we would experience if we had, you know, a, VX gas attack or whatever the case may right. be, you know, like something truly, truly uh, dramatic. And so, you know, I, I realize, and and just being devil's advocate and kind of going through my own processes, I realize that the news media, as we know it, uh, especially the paper format, is is dying. Mm-hmm. It's it's a dying it's a dying business, and uh, it's really really hard for them to even stay afloat, right? Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> I realize that there is a need for them to inject some uh, sensationalism in there so that they can hit certain numbers that allows them to continue proliferating news, right? Mm -hmm. However, at some point, you kind of have to look at what are we after here? Are we... Are we prioritizing financial gain or are we... uh, Are we... Are we prioritizing... Um, man, uh, humankind's mm-hmm. right, uh, and 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 our ability to positively influence all of these people and change millions of lives. So when you're at the end of the day, what you are doing, you may be successful, but are you are you meaningful? Mm-hmm. You know, is that something that that actually ma- truly makes a difference, and 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 something that you can look at yourself in the mirror and be extremely proud to have been a part of? So for me, again, going back on track. What I want to see is I want to see fair reporting. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not asking for them to, um, 
you know, sugarcoat the actions of police officers if there is misconduct. Absolutely not. Let's let's expose them. Let's deal with them. Let's do all this good stuff. But inversely, when when things are done, um, and 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 you know, members are rushing into a building to save a two year old, right? Like recently, like, like in this case, yes. And they were stabbed in the process of doing so. Don't go out and call and and make a big headlines on your newspaper that states police officers were cut. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's semantics. I get it, but if I if I speak to somebody that has zero frame of reference, and I go, okay, two police officers were cut, and I said to them, I need you to describe to me what you just envisioned. Right. They they would look at their finger. A hundred percent. They right. would think, you know, when I cut myself with onions. So because we that's what we do as humans. Our cognitive um, experiences are now attached to whatever we know as a reality. Right. What police work is a lot of the times is extremely gruesome, mm-hmm. extremely, extremely gruesome. So if, if cops are, are uh, you know, stabbed, that is a serious, serious life altering, potentially life ending, life ending situation. And the person that's done it also deserves to be exposed. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying necessarily with their name or anything like that, but I'm just saying don't downplay it or diminish the actions by saying that police officers were caught. Because now it makes the suspect sound like potentially he did something right or he didn't right. do anything that didn't bad. didn't trim his nails well enough earlier and kind of right. cut the... That's right. And now the, the the police officers that entered this place knowing, uh, foresee, I, I don't know the details you know, sure. for a fact, but like we'll, we'll assume that, we assume that there are weapons in most of the houses that we go to, especially if they're problematic. And, and I can tell you that that's the case. There's no question. And if we were to think about, you know, kitchen knives, who doesn't have that? Everyone. So, yeah. So there's always tactical considerations when going on calls like this. And if the person is emo- emotionally disturbed to the point where you're dealing now with a set of circumstances where you have a two-year-old that's in danger to the point where you launch essentially a hostage rescue, right? Because right. there is exigency to do so. You know that some of those things are going to be coming your way. Like that's an accepted fact Like you will get either hurt or you're going to have to respond right. to something you will be faced with. So for them to have that information front-loaded in their frontal cortex and be ready to go and do it anyways, go get stabbed and, uh, and, uh, and a two-year-old is being rescued, um, needs to be proliferated. It needs to be proliferated. The public needs to see, needs to hear the story and needs to see it. As much as they are entitled to know when cops are conducting themselves embarrassingly sure right i think that's a really tall order particularly considering the negative bias that we already talked about to begin with Mm -hmm. that people look towards you can look towards a really positive event and some people clap hey that's Mm -hmm. great glad to hear it but the negative ones and people just dwell over it and on top of that the media holy crow so if we talk about print media these people said well they're just doing it to sell newspapers and friend of mine in the media says, no, no, it's so we can sell advertising, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Really that the better their circulation, sure. the more advertising, the more we have, and we've only got a limited amount of space and we got to catch your attention. And so we'll, we'll put it forth like this. And you're going to have people with negative biases against law enforcement because they got a speeding ticket when they didn't think they should have, and this is their way to get back and they've got a pen or whatever it might be. And I know law enforcement has for a long time now been taking the media out to, uh, on ride-alongs, take them out to the range, show them, 
like these are the decisions that you have to make. Here's some simulated training that they go through to give uh, a better perspective in how things are reported. I don't know if that change in how the media provides the information is ever going to get any better, particularly considering that most people get their information through online sources now. And the online sources are heavily integrated with advertising and revenue, uh, streams through Google, which owns YouTube and Facebook, which owns Instagram. And you will notice like you brought up COVID, you can't write something on social media without the advertising company coming in and putting their two bits on the, uh, on, if you write in, Hey, I got my COVID shot. You're going to see a thing that comes up underneath that talks about COVID. I, I don't know if fairness in reporting is something that we will ever really see again. And when you talk about this precipice of the divisiveness within, uh, people right now and how the media and most of our information sources are really playing up to that. I see it. I think most people see it and it might be exacerbated by what we actually read in the media. It might be greater in our minds of what it might actually be, but at some point it'll reach a tipping point and it'll self-level for better or for worse. Um, but when you talk about leadership and policing, which ties back to who are we hiring and why, how do we develop mental resiliencies? How do we develop basic people skills and a value system so that people can deal with at-risk individuals or people on the street in a way that's going to be conducive to publicly, um, positive reporting. Um, you have been developing a system to sort of change the face of leadership in policing, which I think will touch on all of these points that you've brought up. It'll touch on how the media reports on it because the leadership will now take hopefully a more proactive approach and how they're and how they're engaging the citizens. Like I've always thought, holy crow, a boots on the ground, hearts and minds approach, like what the military will do when they go into a, uh, a foreign area, uh, by the police would do wonders to getting just the basic idea across. You talk about a person getting cut. Well, holy crow, uh, I've, I've known people who've been stabbed. I've known people who've been killed through, uh, by knives. You don't have to go that deep. It doesn't have to be that big of a stab and you can do horrific damage. I remember I had a, I used to bounce back in the day. So did I. <laughs> Ozone nightclub <laughs> out in Surrey there yeah. back when that was around. And, uh, I, uh, I was hired there. The guy didn't, I was working at a gym at the time and this, one of the owners came by the gym and says, um, you'd be perfect. You should come, you should come bounce at, uh, at the Ozone. I wasn't even old enough to attend the Ozone, but no problem. I'll go there. I won't tell him my age. Right. Um, they had a mass exodus of people leaving. Someone got shot in the face in the parking lot. A, a body was found in the dumpster behind the strip club that was right next door to it. Um, but we'd encounter knives there. Friend of mine, I gave some body armor to because I had a whole bunch of old VPD stuff and he ended up getting poked in the belly and in the back and, uh, just went through just a little bit and then he caught it in the arm and went through his, uh, his bicep when he put his hand up to kind of block his, his throat. But 
a bit of a digression there. Um, when we talk about how these things are reported, if people could understand the actual seriousness of what an edge weapon can be to an individual, they say, well, you got a gun, he's got a knife. Come on. I mean, why don't you just wrestle the knife out of his hand? What? He was X distance away. How far away is that? And of course, most police know about the Tuller drill and the Magliato and all, all the other, um, uh, theories on distance and how long a person can live and how far away they can be, um, lethal to. But all of these little points I think could be addressed through what you're talking about in the leadership and policing, how leadership interacts with media, how leadership interacts with the subordinates so that they interact with the general public. Is that sort of the plan that you're, cause as you're talking here and I'm thinking about, it sounds like a very holistic approach that you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, and, and the good news is, um, just, just to go back on something you said, because I think I would really, it would be a disservice for me to not sort of speak to it, but, um, or at least to give you so, uh, mm. some semblance of an opinion on it. Um, <clears throat> I realize that striving for fairness is going to always be difficult. Now, the problem is, 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 is accountability, right? Mm. And so the problem is this. We have a, a prime minister right now that will not answer a question for 27 minutes while all of us are asking it again. And after three or four times that he's skillfully skir uh, skirted his way out of answering the question, nobody asks it again. And I'm standing there going, somebody asked that question again. Hold him accountable. Yeah. And so, and so this is what the issue is here. The public has a lot of power. If mm. the public was to turn around and say, tell us what truly happens here. Tell us who's truly dying from COVID. Tell mm. us who, we would get the information unvetted, right? Mm. But, but there's a lot of information floating around that just we are not getting and we're not asking for it, so we're not getting it. Mm. So it's the same with this. You know, take one isolated incident because we can go on on tangents for days sure. with how we're going to make that happen. How is it actually logistically feasible and how do we all work together and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at, uh, say, the incident with a two-year-old was, so there is enough information out there to know that that occurred, mm -hmm. right? And so now what needs to happen is there needs to be a public backlash mm -hmm. on the way it was addressed in the first place. Let's call it 500 emails. Let's call it 5,000 emails. Mm -hmm. Let's call it 50,000 emails. At some point, it will have an impact. It will have an impact because the next person that comes along a similar situation will be last time we reported on this and we weren't accurate and we weren't, we're going to get 50,000 emails following, mm. right? There is no repercussions. It's acting without repercussions just leads us to do anything. I'll give you an example of this and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of. Yeah. Lead right into your bouncing, your bouncing example. Cause I was a bouncer in Montreal during the biker war between the right. work machine, the hell's angels. It was war zone, mm. you know, no question, but it's interesting because as this war was unfolding and it was, as it was getting worse and worse and people were dying everywhere and, and caught in the crossfires and people were trying to kill people in club lineups with rocket launchers and, right. and all kinds of stupidness. Um, one of the things that never happened for the longest time was for people to say enough is enough, right? And right. so, and so those things proliferated and they continued and they just, it just, it was getting worse and worse. And eventually. An innocent got killed. An eight year old got, got, got killed, right? right. And his, his Jeep blew up in a, essentially a vehicle born IED hmm. and 
boom, and he received you know some some piece of parts of the jeep, and 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 his life ended. When that happened, everybody in Quebec got together, and they're like, enough's enough. They put their foot down. It took a year and a half, or to two years following that to make hanging out with people with colors illegal. Like, mm-hmm. I'm talking about like obviously gang bi- biker gang colors, right? right? And, and having any gathering of more than so-and-so, the sentences got way stiffer and yeah. the, the pursuit and the, 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 the budgets increased for the units that were actually chasing those guys. And, 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 and eventually what happened is there was nothing to be found in Quebec in terms of bikers. It was very, Mambouche was in jail. His son was in jail. The nomads were completely disbanded. It was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so, and so all is, all it took is for everybody to get together once. Right. And, um, anyways, but I, we're, we're seeing that now it, it, we do. And they call it SLO yep. social license to operate. Sure. And we're seeing it, but not necessarily in a positive no, way. No, exactly. And, and this, obviously a good tool can always be used for a bad purpose, right? You can have the, the, the most beautiful, you know, Lapua right. and, uh, <laughs> you can either kill an elephant or, or people, <laughs> yes. Yes. you know, but, um, anyways, so yeah, I, I do believe that, um, and I don't want to make it sound like, um, I single-handedly, oh, you know, hold the key to fixing all the policing problems because right. it would be. Um, extremely disingenuous on my part to say that. Mm. But certainly what the plan is, is to get people to take responsibility for the things that are not going well for us as as police officers and as departments and all these other things. And so teaching all levels of leadership to stop looking around for somebody to rescue them and mm. to self-rescue by being extremely critical of their own actions and also by seeking input and work cooperatively with their people. Mm. So I support you, you support me, not in a way that some media put it, puts a spin on it where I hide you, you hide me. We're talking about ethical, professional behaviors here. Right. And how are we going to problem solve certain things in a prioritize and execute type fashion? We're having an issue with media relationship. Who's fixing that and how? Mm-hmm. And how can we enable it? And how can we help? We need to get the people that are resistant to change to step off. And what's interesting with, with resistant to change is maladjusted leaders, as I call them, um, will, will often be in charge of change. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. And one of the things that I found out is at times I think they take that responsibility on to prevent it, you know, and it's, and, and I'd it, agree hundred percent and it may be conscious or it may be subconscious, but it ends up happening anyway. I'm like, and my conversations are, you are supposed to be spearheading a movement to change here and introduce us to the, you know, to the, the century that we're in and, um, be proactive, but you are not, you're actually disabling everything. So I need you to curb the disabler and start looking, you know. Um, so anyways, so yeah, so that's kind of what the idea is. You're absolutely correct. And it impacts absolutely every aspect of your, uh, of your ability to police effectively. So responsibility and taking responsibility for actions is not something that the RCMP has a stellar reputation for. Now they might do it, but in the public perception, the public eye, they definitely are are held in the same sort of, um, vein as, uh, your example of Trudeau there. And I, I remember I was doing a firearms instructors course with the Vancouver police, uh, 
number of years ago. And there was a VPD officer during that time who I believe he shoved somebody on the streets. It was a woman. I think she might've uh, been disabled or there, there was some issue there. And within the period of time from that incident happening, the officer made a mistake. He thought he was being approached by somebody with ill intent. Turned out this person was, um, MHA and I think it was about a three day span between that incident happening and the brass coming out and saying, yeah, that officer screwed up. Uh, we are now putting that officer on, um, some retraining, pulled them from the current division until they're trained up and, uh, we'll report back after. And that just seemed to me, and I looked at the, uh, the rest, everyone else there was law enforcement and I looked at how everyone else dealt with it and they're like, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Sounds good. And that approach to me, you get in front of the problem, you take responsibility for it. Even if it's a situation where the officer, maybe they made the right decision based on everything, but didn't have that one key piece of information for the department to stand up and take responsibility, that sends a really strong message. And conversely, watching multiple issues, <laughs> one of which is, uh, information up right over my right shoulder where the RCMP, um, would rather double down, circle the wagons, so to speak, and not want to admit wrongdoing. And I always wonder why that is. Is there, is there the worry of opening Pandora's box? If I say, yeah, we screwed up here, then everything's going to come flying or is it just arrogant protectionism? I don't know. And I, am I off base in that sort of, uh, because keep in mind, I was raised in a municipal police force family, which had a very different perspective of what uh, federal policing looks like. Mm -hmm. It's also much, much easier to turn a small, uh, speedboat around than a aircraft right. carrier, right? And, and so, but you're not, no, you're, you're not wrong in the sense that, um, what I, what I could say, I guess, and what I could speak to, not that I'm being limited in anything right. I say whatsoever, but I got to speak to what I know. I can't mm. just start making stuff up. Uh, what I have seen and what I do know is that the RCMP's sort of media um, strategy and, and this is not a knock on those that are wor working in the media sure. strategies, but, but the broad strategy, um, is vastly underfunded for one. And also it's like, there's, there's a, there's a certain centralization of command there that needs to stop. It needs to be decentralized. It needs to be sent to the region. And we need to have some strong teams of strong leaders. We're talking about people, you know, that, that can take ownership of things that mm. can dig into things and find facts that can be given without say jeopardizing an investigation or um, making a statement that's completely off base. Mm. Now, from the perspective of the members, there's no protective attitude on, on, the, on the part of the organization as far as our regular members are concerned because these guys feel like they're being ragged into the mud incessantly right. and nobody is stepping up for them. So this, this, this is a two-way street. Mm -hmm. They're actually not providing information, but they're also not defending the members, right? So now you have, you, basically it's on two fronts where it's a failing on two fronts. Mm. Like communicate. And, and one of the things that I really, really don't like is when you start taking listeners and, and, and people and the public for idiots. Like don't, don't start taking people for idiots. Like if you actually give them a 
the totality of the circumstances, or at the very least, an, an exemplification of what this might look like, or this might have occurred here, or, or we don't know for sure all the details, but we can tell you this. We've asked our officers to go in a very tough situation. This occurred. As soon as we know more, we'll give you more. Mm. But we don't, e we don't even give them that because we're afraid of making a mistake. If you make a mistake, you own your mistake you own your mistake publicly and you apologize for it. And those are the, the mechanisms that we're going to put in place so that it does not repeat itself. And this is it. It's over. You don't lose respect when you do that as a leader. But when you start hiding, being disingenuous, this is where you're now establishing your character as an organization. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is after that, everything you do is always tinted with the possibility that you are being disingenuous, right? Right. And so for me, um, you know, I just... I would love to see a much more open uh, f format with respect to how we communicate preemptively, whether it's with operations or some of the work that we do or some of the, the really difficult situation that our members are in. And, you know, have, take the public for what they are, which is if you give them a reasonable uh, if you give them reasonable facts and you give them reasonable, they will come to a very similar conclusion. And yes, there's always going to be the outliers, that are, you know, the conspiracy theorists and, and, and all these other things. I mean, conspiracy, conspiracy. We can't get together on what kind of color pen we're going to purchase. So let alone broad scope conspiracy, <laughs> the, you know, this yeah, is yeah. just, this is just, you know, just unworkable uh, in a government organization as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but yeah, I just, the lack of media strategy needs to be addressed and it's not a, a, a sort of a, a follow-up to whatever happens. It's preemptive. It's got to be proactive. It's proactive and it's, and it's after as well. Mm. Give you an exa another example of this, uh, you know, that has tragic, has had tragic consequences. So Pierre Lemaitre was the gentleman, excuse me, that, um, that came out and during the Surrey, uh, the Surrey 6, uh, sorry, not the Surrey 60, um, the, the Jensky incident at the Vancouver airport. Right. And he has made, uh, uh, you know, uh, first statement that had some mistakes in it and, 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 uh, it wasn't ill will or anything like that. It just was reported in a way that, con you know, conveyed some facts that weren't necessarily facts mm -hmm. at the time uh, there were some missing pieces there so what happened was of course pierre wants to go back and wants to correct his mistake and wants to go to the public and say look i i, I screwed up i didn't have all the facts here and i thought i heard this and or i was told this but mm -hmm. it wasn't verified or whatever the case may be and explain that to the public and let them know what happened and he was told categorically no you are mm -hmm. not going to do that took his life right he took his own life right right and and and, and it, we just we 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 need to understand and it, it, it's quite interesting because when you set a culture of ownership with yourself as a leader ownership and accountability with yourself as a leader it starts it starts bleeding into your culture and all of your people and it's really difficult nowadays to go anywhere and have somebody say, this didn't work out because I did this wrong or I didn't work. When do you see that? Or I, hardly ever. Right. But on units, like say on the team I was on or whatever, we sat there and that was a constant. People were fighting over who was responsible for what, as in trying to take the blame. Mm -hmm. You weren't even working that day. 
Hmm. You had nothing to do with it, you know. Like it, it got to an extent. It got to an extent where everybody, the culture of ownership was there. Well, if you transpose this on a broad spectrum, you are doing it organizationally. You are now send, sending this down the ranks mm -hmm. as well. So there is like it's a Pandora's box. You're absolutely right in that if we do it correctly, it's going to have a trickle down effect that will impact everybody's ability to have that ownership. And I, when I say everybody, we always know there are some that won't. But the more you have the masses do the right thing, the less popular it is to have somebody not do the right thing, if that makes any sense. You know, that's a really interesting way to look at it too, because with the social license to operate, it, it seems like there is a misguided approach to ownership of responsibility in society at the moment. And maybe that's because they have not received a good example from those who should be in a leadership position. When people are going and looking at events that happened a hundred or more years ago and saying, we've got to take ownership for this now. Well, and that's going to open up a whole, whole other can of worms of things, but the level of ownership that officials are being asked to take upon themselves, sometimes for things that had absolutely nothing to do with them, I think is rather unreasonable by sometimes the vocal majority. Mm -hmm. Having a police force, having a government in power that will take responsibility and encourage the federal police force to do the same thing and set the parameters or the framework for, uh, what is right and what is wrong and what is acceptable or not will probably have a very massive effect in the populace who is looking at it and saying, Hey, it's not right. I don't know what is right, but my personal feeling is, and, and running off on, on all of these strange tangents. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, and I've you know, we'll try to qualify this as much as I can and, and try to avoid, uh, uh, you know, a, a nuclear explosion, but mm. here's what my thoughts are on that. You're talking about events that occurred, you know, hundreds of years ago. You're talking about events that were say at the time church led, mm -hmm. supported by the current government mm -hmm. and forced by the RCMP. Mm -hmm. Supported by the public that puts people into power. Right. Right. So everybody along the way had a play in the horrible things that occurred. Sure. There isn't one group in that, including the public, that can turn around and look at anybody else and say, you are responsible for that because the person of today is as responsible for those events as you are. Right. Because you elected if we're going to go down that, that rabbit hole, you elected the people in power at the time. So therefore you today are responsible for what happened. Mm -hmm. But people don't want to look at it like that because it's a process of shifting responsibility. It's again, that fault, not my fault. Again, it's deflection, right? And deflection is just everywhere, but it's le it leads us nowhere. It leads us to further divide. Like we need to understand Like we need to a hundred percent try to find collective ways to make, we'll never change what happened. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely horrible. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't even want to go down that. I mean, right. it's, I think we all understand how, how, how absolutely horrible those situations were. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing today to ensure that this is never, ever, ever, ever repeated? that there is no bleeding, you know, mm -hmm. of, of the same culture continuing to proliferate all these other things. And I can, I will take ownership of this all day. 
But we need to understand it was a very, very different time. All the people involved for the major, like 99% of them are dead. There's mm-hmm. no question there, um, especially those in positions of power because they would have been right. already in their 30s or 40s. And so now it's how do we move forward and what do we do now to make things? You know, what? one other tangent here and mm-hmm. you brought it up and I just figured, just been sitting in the back of <laughs> Go ahead. Here we go. <laughs> uh, I'm just warming up. <laughs> yes. COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not a uh, contentious topic. Probably a little less contentious of what we're talking about at the moment. Um, so friend of mine, longtime friend, uh, went to high school with him, gives me a phone call, says, Trav, I've been tasked with taking a look at how we can increase, um, vaccination rates in the Northern areas of the province among hunters and He's, he works for the provincial government and he's a director and he's got a lot of people working under him and they're looking, why aren't we having a, an adoption rate like we'd like to see out there of the vaccination? I said, well, I can give you my perspective and it's, it may or may not be shared by these other people, but I think the biggest part of all of this puzzle is, is how that information is communicated. And just what you were saying earlier about not taking people's intelligence for granted. You know, there was an article I read, I believe it was Jeff Bezos and whoever the new, I think it was Tim Cook, uh, two of them talking about creating cultures of success. And they said unequivocally time and time again, they find that when they have a group of individuals who are highly driven and they bring somebody from the outside in to join that group, that person might not be the most highly driven person, but they will match that drive that the rest of the group has. Likewise, if they have a group of people who are rather lazy and they bring a highly driven person in, it doesn't take long for that person to kind of meet that norm. People will sort of level to the, to their environment. They kind of want to fit in. So when we talk about not underestimating an individual's intelligence or the masses intelligence, why don't we just anticipate that people have some intelligence and they can make a decision if we present them with that information. So I, I took them through point by point, some of where my concerns were. I mean, nobody wants to feel forced into doing something. Nobody wants to be coerced. If you give them the information and it makes sense, they'll probably readily jump at it and went through a plan that I figured it, the whole thing essentially just re, uh, revolved around honesty in how information is being provided. And we'll see. He's, he took notes. He said, well, we'll, I, I doubt, I, I have my doubts in, in how all of that'll go across, but, um, just a bit of an interesting, uh, aside talking about responsibility in media, responsibility in leadership, because he's in a leadership role. Why, why provide information that's partially true or true in one respect, but doesn't take into other things provided all there for people to look at. Like if, if the end goal of vaccination revolves around the fact that our country is publicly funded in our healthcare and we lack ICU beds for, to deal with a pandemic on top of everything else, then say that. Maybe people will step up and say, well, you know, whether I believe in COVID or not, whether I believe we'll get this or not, I do know that people get in car accidents, people get hurt and Maybe if this will lessen my effects of, of if I do get COVID and it'll lessen the strain on ICU, then put that out there for people. 
I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you're referring to earlier, and I thought that's worth mentioning, is called synergical, basically, um, what's the word? You, you know what a con the concept of synergy is? is mm -hmm. Essentially, you bring two people together. If, if you have one person dig a trench, mm -hmm. how long has it taken that person? Mm -hmm. And if you bring another person in and they work well together, how much has it taken two people? Well, right. logic would say half the time. But the reality is it could be as much as three times as fast. Right. Inversely, you can take that one person that takes a year to dig a hole, you bring another person, the wrong person, mm -hmm. and now you're dealing with triple the time. Right. That it would have taken one person to do it because you've negatively impacted the masses. But what you do, what you are speaking of is you already have an established synergy one way or another. Mm -hmm. Now you're bringing one person that gets, you know, sucked in essentially with the culture that's already established. Right. It's very, very powerful and, and it works. And that's why you want to have that positive synergy in your workplace so that your people are actually um, force multipliers. Right. And they can do a lot more with a lot less and a lot more effectively. Um, yeah. And um, where was I going with this again now? Well, I, I guess the reason I kind of segued into that, because it was brought up about COVID and it's mm -hmm. interesting about how media is putting it out and how the government's choosing to sure. communicate, I brought all that up. But the one overriding thing that I, I saw out of this whole COVID experience that was concerning more than the lack of toilet paper, right? More than all of these goofy little things that are going on was the general group think. Like that was scary. Uh, and that is scary. And when you take a look at how group think is affecting, um, how we operate on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that bleeds back over into, uh, organizations like the RCMP and what that group think looks like and how people can break out of just the um, the echo chamber, so to speak. And it is something where they can replicate that Stanford, I think it was, so you're saying the experiment yeah. where you, where you have more diversity and thought to be able to come, come to a solution. But that, that the general group think that I'm seeing right now, uh, is something in, if we're talking about it in, let's say a policing, uh, context is definitely something that can use some work. There's a lot of positive in the group, th group think, but there are areas within the leadership and in management that, um, would need to be positively affected in order for ownership to be taken on, on different tasks. And I, and I got to wonder, how do you do that? Yeah. So what it's, it's, it's a big, big undertaking, right? <clears throat> so for me, one of the, excuse me, <clears throat> not sure what's in there, cat maybe or something. <laughs> um, it, for me, one of the, one of the areas of focus has been changing the culture from the inside out, right? Because here's what the issue is. When, even when we're having a conversation about management and leaders, all these people along the way, all the way to however high of a rank you want it to be, are thinking of their leaders, mm -hmm. right? So now what we have done is we've essentially taken 80% of the workforce and took them out of the problem-solving equation. Mm. We didn't do it, but they did it. Mm -hmm. Because that's what happens, right? And so for me, when I hear, you know, management this and management that, the question is always, what are you doing? What have you done today to make things better for the organization? What have you done today to make things better for your peers? What have you done today for whatever, X, Y, and Z? Okay. And if the answer is nothing, zip it and get something done. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear deflection. I don't want to hear who can do this for you or not. Take, take some actions, 
make some calls and, and help someone do something. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, just, I just think that, again, the more unpopular we make it to be a certain way, the easier it will be to affect the change. Mm-hmm. So we need to have the masses pulling in the same direction. And that's going to be, that's going to be putting some pressure, right? And, 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 and also as people are starting to leave the ranks because they're retiring or they're, they're you know, leaving the outfit or whatever sure. the case may be, you're going to now replace with a generation that's been going through those changes and, uh, and, and, and now are a part of a certain culture which changes the culture of the leadership. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you, and I say that to the people all the time is you are the next wave of leaders. Hence why it's so important for us to, and I mean, let's call a spade a spade. A police officer that is sworn in and receives a badge is expected to be a leader. Absolutely. Constable or not, they will be on critical incident scenes. They will be dealing with accidents. They will be dealing with problem solving. They will be, they will take the lead on all of those things. So to say, well, you know, I'm not interested in leadership. Well, that's for somebody that isn't in policing. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Once you become a police officer, you've abdicated the right to not be a leader. And that's not to say that you know you can't also follow, because that's a critical quality of a leader, having the ability to follow. Yeah, you well. need to be a good follower exactly. to be a good leader. Exactly. And I think most leaders yeah. who are in that position will have received that training. Mm-hmm. I remember at 12 years old, I was... One of the things I had to memorize, leadership's the art of influencing human behavior in a manner. Oh, oh, did I forget it? Influencing human behavior to accomplish a mission in a manner so desired by the leader. A common goal. I love it. Right. Best, best description of leadership. And if you look at the, do you know the description of management? It's a science, not an art. And what is it normally assigned to? Assets. Right. Things. Right. Right. So I, I often hear that. In, in, very impressed with you remembering that by heart, by the way. Uh, but, um, but, uh, yeah, you know, uh, and so now you have your manager, your manager versus leader kind of, uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. And of course you have the people that we know that manager, man- managerial tasks are a part of leadership, but the other way around isn't always the case. Mm-hmm. So ultimately what you, what we should be striving for is having those inspirational leaders the ones that people want to be like. Yes. Not not liked by, but be like. Emulate, mm-hmm. emulate and 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 you know, once you start once you start having those types of leaders and organizations, like leaders are pumped out, you know, quickly. It's yes. it's, it's so interesting because people will go out and do the things that that leader has done to be where they are or to be, or to have the perspective that they, the perspective that they have or all these, and we see it now with all kinds of podcasts that are out there as you know, you have the Jocko Willings and the, Mm. and the, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting how, uh, if, if Jocko says something, all of a sudden you have all these leaders everywhere going, okay, I should probably be doing this. I dropped the ball on this and now it's, it's crazy. We're in an age of information where there is zero excuse not to be up to par with the information out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fantastic. There's you, so much information. So I'm, as you're talking, I, <laughs> I made uh, three separate notes yeah. because I think it would be of value to people who are listening. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, you're talking about uh, front loading on your day, listening to positive mm-hmm. uh, affirmations, listening to positive people talking about things. What is on your playlist for that. Who do, who do you tend to listen to? Well, it depends what, what kind of pursuit 
I'm I'm after, right? If I'm listening to if I'm listening to a straight up leadership podcast, generally is gonna be Jocko. Yep. And it's and the reason why I really like Jocko, not just for Jocko, because I relate to him. He's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, so am mm. I. We have all these other things. But what I do like is a David Burke and all these other people that he has on there that are absolutely incredible humans mm-hmm. and, and have wealth of knowledge and the, the Vietnam vets and the SOG guys and all mm-hmm. these other things, right? And, um, and I really, in, and there will be reading off the, you know, the Marine Corps leadership groups, which of course, 350 years of combined leadership experience in the Marine Corps. I mean, just right. like, incredible leaders coming out of the Marine Corps as, as we know. But, um, but I, this will be for that pursuit. Now, if I'm, if I'm um, in a mood for, say, intellectual pursuit, I'll mm-hmm. be listening to the Jordy P- Jordan Peterson or right. the Lex Freeman, or I will be listening to, um, who else am I listening to on the daily? Um, even, uh, what is, what's his name? Weinstein or Bert Weinstein? Okay, or, yeah. And then there's um, Sam Harris, even I will, yeah. you know, like I, I just... And and again, you know, there's some contentions around Jordy P. And w- listen, like when I listen, that's a sharp, sharp dude. Yes, and when I listen, when I listen to when I listen to people like this, I don't listen to gospel. Like mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, drinking everything. Right. I take what I hear and I process it, and what and 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 I try to affect my own mindset, my own uh, intellectual sort of, you know. O- uh, sort of override my own bias to try to see other other angles. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I may look at Jordy P and say, I totally agree with 99% of what you said today, but that 1%, I can't get behind. Well, right? 99% of the stuff he says isn't absolutely concrete. It's not. Most of it is quite open. It is. And that's the beauty of it, that some people will look at it and take it as concrete mm-hmm. and they'll get right up in arms about it when he's just making a general question. Yeah. Most of it is questions. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. But he's be you know, he's, he's got one of the worst personality traits you can have and that he is honest mm. and genuine, right? right? And he's just honest and it is a very unpopular time to be, it just, it just is. But I think the more of us stand up and actually have the stones to do it, um, you know, we need, we need more and more of that. And I think what you're, what, what you're trying, starting to see in the, um, in the public, you know, in the, mm-hmm. on the social media or otherwise, what you are starting to see is people starting to understand that there's some different areas here that we have been, you know, we went kind of too far the other way. Mm-hmm. So now they want to bring that back to the measured, uh, you know, on measured ground, so to speak. And then, and then, and really have, um, I guess, a more balanced approach to some of the issues that we're faced with. And you're, you're starting to see the tides turn. Like you're starting to see, you're starting to see it. You know, it's quite interesting. It is. Yeah. It goes far one way. It'll go far the other sure. way. The universe is a funny way of unfolding as it should. It is. And it's cyclical, right? It is. In a hundred years, they'll have the exact same issue. Yeah. It is, it is what it is, but we'll be long gone by then. So the other one I wrote down here was, okay. So you spent a fair bit of time in policing, mm-hmm. in ERT. Yeah. You're, you're in roles of higher stress higher excitement, higher exhilaration, high reward for what you're doing for effort out. What are you doing to replace that now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's hard, I would say, but I would say what I miss the most is the thought process that goes behind, um, 
solving tactical dilemmas. I just love to use my brain and to have to problem solve something that has only bad um, solutions. Right. Just which one of those is the less worse and how we're going to mitigate the risk and how we're going to be able to articulate taking a certain course of action and how is that course of action justify and you know all those mm -hmm. things so i really like the intricacies of doing that i love doing that i miss that a ton mm -hmm. and it's interesting because i i will still get phone calls not necessarily from my team but i will because they're very capable mm -hmm. but i but i will get phone calls sometimes from teams across the country that perhaps haven't had the same exposure or or and sometimes just to kind of run problems by me and i love when people do that right because it keeps me it keeps me thinking it keeps me engaged mm -hmm. in the problem solving realm what i would say though is in my life i have driven absolutely everything i do into the ground mm -hmm. everything moderations for cowards mm -hmm. i don't believe in it and uh when i wanted to be a, a swat team leader i went all out and i stayed there for 13 years you know 12 and a half years so to speak well yeah i mean and 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 so i i literally took that out of my system you know i took it out of my system now the one thing the one thing that i that i cannot put enough emphasis on is you can't let something define you. Right. If something defines you completely, let me rephrase that. Something may define you partially. External. But, and partially. Right. You have to have all these other pieces that also define you. Right. So when one of those pieces goes missing, you are, re you are capable of reorging and being the same person that you were. Mm -hmm use the experience that you've acquired at the time at which you were, you know, involved in this, in, in this engagement, but, but it doesn't destroy you. So one of, one of the things that we see with old generations, RCMPs, like the people with 30, 40 years of service, is that a lot of the times they feel they are nothing if they're not engaged. Right. And so the death rate of some of those members retiring, police officers, municipal or otherwise, are astronomical. Mm -hmm. Because the sense of purpose has kind of completely vanished and dis disappeared. And, um, and it couldn't be further from the truth. Oh, absolutely. It couldn't be further from the truth. But what we need to do is we need to start teaching our, our, our young officers and everybody or firefighters or whoever mm -hmm. engage. What you are doing professionally does not define you. Those are all, it's part of who you are and it's a part if it goes away, just like anything else, you're going to re reorg, regroup, and go again, and 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 you know continue to be the person that you are and have a positive positive impact on others. So for me, one of the tiny little piece, I always liked to be engaged in. Um, I I don't know how to. This is quite interesting. I I don't generally lose you know how to articulate certain things, but I'm having an issue with this. But it's. Essentially, if we act on the premise that I lived a warrior ethos mm -hmm. since I was very, very young, either through martial arts or through my professional engagements or whatever the case may be. And when I say warrior, I don't, I don't mean war in terms of well, know, necessary, but just live a certain ethos. I carry it on now. I'm a jiu-jitsu black belt. I got it this year when I was retired. Good right? for you. Now I'm starting judo. Next week, I'm going to wrap a white belt. 
around my around my waist. This is Freedom. my third pursuit of black belt over my course of my you know my years in, engaged in martial arts. I am 45 years old, completely stoked and excited to go the judo route, and I'm going to get you know tossed over and over again. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn the things, and yeah, it's going to be hard on my body and all these other things. But mm. so now I've kind of redirected my energy. Now I want to I want to be fully engaged in judo, right? Mm. And so I f I find all those things that are direct, almost um, I would say almost in line with what I've and how I've lived my life. And I will find as many of those things as I can, whether by way of working out and going on hikes with, you know, if we go on hikes with the family, I'll put a weight vest on and, you know, I, I'm yeah. still in, I'm still in that mode. Like I'm, I'm going to drive this one into the ground. And when they do find my body, when it's all said and done, they will say, this one is a done. Done. And if, and if, there, left over. And if there's ever an option to bring somebody back, they'll say, not him. <laughs> <laughs> He's too beat up. Too worn out. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely done. Oh man. Yeah. That's, I, I like that person. So I guess at the core, that warrior mindset is what defines you. Not so much the job, not so much the martial arts, not the leadership training, but the mindset or the drive of always trying to, the pursuit of excellence, essentially. Would that be fair? Yeah. 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 It, it would be. And I mean, let's get something straight. I never reached it anywhere, but. <laughs> <laughs> and no one does. And that's, no. that's why they call it the pursuit mm -hmm, of excellence. Mm -hmm. And, 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 uh, you know, the line is all, is consistently pushed, pushed, you know, over and over and over. And, and that's the beauty of things. And we do so many things that we skim the surface on. Uh, mm. and, and what you start, what you start un understanding is that once you start going deeper into things, there is so much more enjoyment um, one of the things that I do with my groups when I, when I present, especially on the, um, on the introspective leader course is a, a, a simple exercise to illustrate how we're overthinking certain things. And I ask people like, what do you like? Dark or light coffee? Mm. And people will say, oh, I like dark. I like light. And then you generally ask why. And one of them will say, well, dark is stronger in caffeine or whatever. Right. Sure. And so, and so the, the reality is that, you know, light coffee is not roasted nearly as much. So the grain or dancer and generally negligibly higher in caffeine. And if mm. you really want to increase your caffeine content, you're going to have to jack up the amount of coffee you're drinking. Right. right? And so that's one piece. But the, the other piece to this, aside from the fact that most people think that dark coffee is actually stronger when it isn't, the other piece to this is the taste that you're after comes from the regions from where the coffee is coming. Mm -hmm. Because coffee beans take the taste of their environment. And right. so if you're going to Brazil, your, t your coffee is nutty. If you're going into Ethiopia, your coffee tastes more like chocolate. And so, and then once you understand that there is a world there, what you start doing is you stop focusing on light or dark roast and you start looking at where's the coffee from and what do I feel like today? You know, do I feel like vanilla hint or do I feel like, you know, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm being a total yeah. clown, but you know what I yeah. mean? Like whatever the case may be. And then you, you can really go down and explore coffees and regions. So imagine that you're traveling to Hawaii, you're traveling to Iceland, you're traveling to all these regions. And all you've ever said is I want a dark coffee. You've missed out on, you know, how many thousands of potentially incredible flavor of coffee. And so. This is a really, really oversimplified process and I'm not even touching the surface of it because I got, you know, a very, um, you know, rudimentary level coffee knowledge. Right. There's people 
having masters in coffee, sure, you know, coffee sommelier. Yeah, right there. <laughs> 100%. And so, but it, the beauty with this and, and the beauty of the introspective leader course is that I believe that you can convey a message to people that this will not only make you a better leader, but it would also teach you to appreciate life more. I would agree with that a hundred percent. It is absolutely cool. amazing to go everywhere around the world and say, here's an Iceland coffee. Where does this grow? Mm-hmm. What does it taste like? It's light, dark, medium, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to try that. So now you try that and you're like, wow, that was absolutely amazing. Right? And we do that with absolutely everything. We, we tend to really, really say surface level. We do. Even though information is readily available more than in any other time in human history. That's probably why we stay surface level because. (laughs) It's too easy to just find out. It is. And there's, there's so much information out there that the retention level of the information, it comes, it goes, it comes, it goes, process. We today take in on a daily basis, so much information that it can be completely overwhelming for for most people, honestly, and it and kind of puts them to a place of inaction. And I, I love that. That's Hicks law, right? Hicks law. Exactly. Having, I was going to say that. Yeah. Having, to, having too many options and, 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 and it stifles your ability to make a call. Right. But, but here's what needs to happen in my opinion. And I, you know, um, what matters at the time, right? Mm. And so the issue is you're right. We're consistently bombarded by all those things and we're doing it 24 seven. Now, if I'm selecting coffee and I live in the moment, I'm selecting coffee right now. Mm. I'm not thinking about my phone call to Karen. Right. Right. And so if we have, and this comes down to mindfulness ultimately. And so if, if we have the ability to actually focus on the now and a little bit before and a little bit after, just, you know, for, mm-hmm. for good measure, we now, we now can focus our attention to the now and what is the decision that I'm making right now and what is entailed in that decision and you know mm-hmm. and so it's not an overthinking process it's like yeah it's useless information until you need it right and there is no one of the it works hand in hand with the fact that our brains have the ability to retain listen there's people out there that can recite an entire yellow phone book mm-hmm. There is no limit to how much information we can have mm-hmm. the problem is is there is limit to our focus right that's what the problem is. So you can have the information that you can use when convenient, but it's going to take you 10 minutes to understand how to select your coffee. That 10 minutes you just invested in years of coffee enjoyment. Right. To be used when you are selecting coffee, not when you're running your team meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, bunch of things that you brought up there <laughs> and you know, it, you might have to come on for another podcast <laughs> if I can coerce you just because I don't want to uh, go too long for everybody here. It's interesting though. They, they've, they, people are listening to the long podcast. It's completely insane. They break them down in pieces and Jordan Peterson was talking about that. He says, you yeah. would think that a three hour podcast wouldn't be as successful. And he's like, they're the more successful. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's, well, it's, maybe it's I got to start breaking it down into pieces. <laughs> break, here. break the mold. I've always gone for 45 minutes to an hour. My ethos behind the podcast always was. And is, I want to bring something positive to people. Sure. I want to bring either entertainment or education mm-hmm. or something that they can walk away with and say, I learned something or I'm better for listening to it. So in that, I try to plan the podcast and plan the guests to bring value to the listener base. And I figure 
they're going to tune out after a certain point. So I've always looked at, maybe I'll just put it out there. Anybody listening who's made it this far, let me know. Okay. Let me know what you like to hear podcast at silvercore.ca. But when you're talking about, um, what defines you, you're talking about, um, when we look at when you're on the job and you come out and, uh, what you're doing for that excitement level, as well as living in the moment, uh, a very good friend of mine, he's actually been on this podcast in the past and he's talked about his SAS selection. He talked about his time, British army, and he was, um, operating the 338 Lapua over there. I used to say Lapua until I was schooled over at SHOT Show. I'm like, no, 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 it's Lapua. Okay. <laughs> at, okay, guys. At their booth. Um, but he is, he got into extreme alpinism and, um, he does that a fair bit. He's going through his ACMG mountain guide accreditation and all the rest. And, uh, found that as a very, uh, positive outlet for him where he's now making those operational decisions in the mountain. He'll have a group that he'll be bringing up and he's brought me up a number of times and definitely pushed my boundaries as well when for the better but it really forces you to be in the moment. And maybe that's a situation of, uh, unconscious, unconscious coping, where as opposed to just being mindful, you're now forced to be mindful. Mm -hmm. When you're surfing, you're forced to be mindful in the moment. When you're rock climbing, you're forced to look at every time, every place you put your hand, every, every piece of gear that you put into a crack and, and check it. Um, it's outcome focused. It is. If yeah. you don't do it, you will, something critical or dire could happen. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the same with jujitsu. Mm. It forces you to be in that role. If you're thinking about your office meeting or something else, your, your back just got taken. But the, in all of that thinking, cause mm -hmm. I watched him as he goes through and as he gets, he's getting older and he's maturing in his alpinism and all the rest, and he's had some injuries and, and seeing the, uh, the thought process um, behind, like you look at, uh, the Uli Steck, I don't know if you've ever heard that name before, but in, in the alpinism world, kind of a big name passed away a few years ago, but he had just record runs up a lot of, uh, very iconic mountains with little to no gear and, in just like no time at all. But at some point of pushing, pushing, pushing and driving things like you do with the different activities you get into you reach a point of diminishing returns. And in Uli's case, he's no longer around anymore. He had a fall on one of his, uh, trips, not, did not adequate protection. Um, that mental management process and that mindset of knowing enough, like what is enough? When do you have enough? Do you find that difficult when you start getting into these different endeavors that you get into? Like what, what is a cat? When am I going to be happy? What's enough? Well, I'm going to reframe the question for you. Okay. Was that gentleman going to a destination or is the journey that he enjoyed? Which one? Uli or? Yeah, Uli. I mean, it's the journey that he truly enjoyed. Right. He wasn't going anywhere. Right. So now let's, let's, let's take Uli with the same fire inside of him and let's sit him on a porch for the last 30 years. Actually, let's sit him on a porch at the time of death and say, we just extended your life 30 years and you can sit here and watch the birds and the, the cars go by. Mm -hmm. And then say, hell no. And then go back and say, okay, look, we're going to return you 30 years before 
but on one of those climbs, you're going to be done. Mm. You would pick that. I can guarantee it. Mm-hmm. For somebody like that, I would have to agree. hundred percent. So, so for me, it's, it, we're acting and it, it, this is just, it's just a societal thing. And I think it just has to do with the fact that we're so comfortable, right? If you were in Somalia right now, I grew up there, you wouldn't be thinking that far in advance because mm-hmm. you, you've seen people die left, right, and center incessantly mm-hmm. at, at every day. So you're not, your outlook would be very, very different. We're seeing death as this big monster. None of us is coming out of this alive. Mm-hmm. None of us is. Like this isn't, this isn't a destination type thing. Mm-hmm. This is a journey. And he died doing what he loved the most. It would have been no different for me if I was dying doing some tactical operation, hopefully, but not some completely stupid that I did. Sure. Uh, you know, or, or somebody else did that now they have to live with that. Mm-hmm. But if, if we were to take all the complex, uh, complexity outside, you know, out of it and say, okay, y- you stood up for what you felt was right at a time at which somebody needed to step up and you, like many before you, have done, have sacrificed your life. Mm-hmm. Sign me up. Sign me up. Very good point. I just, I just think that longevity versus intensity, I'll take intensity of my life, you know, um, and that's just. Every man dies, not every man truly lives. That's just, that's just how I feel about it. I just, I just truly think that if he was given the choice, he probably would have picked the same choice. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. Well, one last thing I have here. Yeah. I was actually going to start with this, but Mm -hmm. we kind of went, went through in our, in a route here. But when I look at the podcast that you've been doing recently, I see the number of podcasts and places that you've been, uh, you've been speaking. It strikes me that it's similar to working out. It's similar to jujitsu and that you're training for something. Am I correct in the, in that casual observation? Are you training for, uh, uh for something? A podcast marathon. <laughs> it, it, no, your, your own podcast or to be on certain podcasts, hopefully in the future, or is there, do you have a goal in that? I mean, it would be semi disingenuous to say, I don't have a goal. I mean, my goal is always to get better. Right. And I like to be, I like to have conversations. Mm-hmm. I, I love to have conversations, especially productive two-way, you know, bilateral communication conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to do it because I know that, um, I, I, I have an ability to generally connect with people. So I, I know that there is value to it. So I, I, mm. I really enjoy doing that and I don't overstate the value of it. I don't think I'm critically important or anything like that. But, but what I do think is that there are certain conversations that ought to be had that we're not having that I would love to be a part of. And if going on bigger and bigger platform is something that's down the road for me, I mm. would, I would love that. I would love that. But here's the other thing. And that's something that surprised quite a few people. But I, I also would be totally okay with going on a podcast and not speak about policing at all. Right. At all. Like yep. I can I can have conversations about a million different things. And I'm not suggesting that during an entire three hour podcast I'm not going to refer to an experience that I had right. or something, you know, I, because it's been a part of me for so long and it's taught me some valuable lessons. But in terms of 
the actual topic, uh, it could be absolutely anything. I just love to have conversations. And I and being on podcasts really feels good. Like I love mm-hmm. to do it. I love to do it. I think it I think it's and so people have suggested, you know, you maybe you should have your own and all these other things. I really don't want to do any editing and I and I don't right. think I'm that great of an interviewer, to be honest with you. And maybe I become better or, you know. But I just um I just prefer I just kind of prefer being a guest. So, if that makes any sense. Oh, it does. Yeah. You know, when I started this podcast, I hadn't listened to really any podcast prior. Mm-hmm. I was on a podcast, uh, and a friend of mine had me on his podcast. He's got a local business here and he's, uh, teaches new hunters and, and, uh, that was fun. And then I, uh, went down, I saw Steve Ranella, who's, uh, got a Netflix show called Mediator and he's, uh. Yeah, yeah, I follow the show. Oh, okay, yeah, I watch yeah, Joe Rogan and everything. I just love the show. So got to meet Steve and Janice and uh, a few of the other people on there and actually became good friends with one of the people who's uh, with Meat Eater there. And um, I thought, well, this is kind of neat, but entirely outside my comfort zone. I've got ADHD. I have a conversation up until a point where I lose interest. And usually that's why I just get up and walk away. <laughs> I mean, that's, so this has been, uh, for me, something to share my positivity and it's been a very positive outlet to try and support others in the, uh, who have similar interests. And I've specifically not called this the, like say the meat eater podcast or the, uh, the firearms podcast, because those are only small portions of things that interest me and it's kind of in some ways, um, it, it can be detrimental in the short term because people look at the title and they're like, what the hell am I going to be listening to here? But I'm hoping that in the long term, the breadth of the guests and the breadth of what we're bringing in with the underlying positivity, as well as, as we do this, I can feel myself very slowly getting a little bit better and less ums and ahs and be- better able to engage. So similar to where you're at, uh, not only as a positive thing, I found, I've found the podcast to be uh, a challenge and something that requires constant, uh, study, constant concentration, research on people. How, how do I engage better or better equipment or whatever it might be? So it's, um, definitely a different experience hosting the podcast than being on a podcast as a guest. But, um, I don't know. I think, uh, if you ever do want to, uh, take on that challenge, I think you would do very, very well at it. Yeah. I've, I've heard that. I've heard that a few times and I, I, you know, it's almost like something, something in me says, um, now is not the time type deal, you Mm. know, like it just, just trust your gut. Yeah. And I've, yeah, the reason why I really, really believe that is that I've pretty much run my life like this and mm. it's always paid dividend. And sometimes I could be having this conversation with you and tomorrow morning I'm ready to have my own podcast. Right. You know what I mean? Like it, it changes Quick. really quickly yeah. and then it's like, okay, the time is right. Knuckle down and let's, let's get this done. So it, it will be interesting right now. Of course I'm floating, right. Mm. And at very living, very organically since retiring mm. from a very structured and regimented, you know, um, lifestyle over the course of my military and then RCMP career. Essentially, I've been institutionalized for the better part of my Mm. adult life. And so now I'm learning to, you know, do things very organically and I really enjoy it. So we'll see. It's not outside the realm of possibility. I would love to hit, you know, the, the, the Jordan Peterson, the Joe Rogans, Mm -hmm. the, 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 the Jocko, if there is a, uh, you know, if I can contribute 
mm-hmm. something. If if there's a if there's a feeling, a true a, a true feeling that I can contribute something positive, right. you know, and that's that's that. I wouldn't want to just go there just to go there. You know, I'm you look at me. I'm on the Jocko podcast. What am I talking about? Well, right. whatever. Oh, you'd look back and you wouldn't be proud of that. No, exactly. So yeah, very cool. So I, maybe we'll just wrap this up with if we did another podcast, what. If you could do a podcast about anything, anything, pull it out of a magic box and say, this is what we're going to talk about. What would you want to talk about? Wow. That's, um, that's a tough one. If we could do a podcast on absolutely anything. Or would that just change day by day, depending on what's currently no, there is so many subjects and so many things that I'm interested in. Um, and I think we have a vested interest in absolutely everything that surrounds us. Right. And so we could talk about, you know, kids and raising them and we could talk about outdoors and, 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 and we could talk about, uh, travels and we could talk about, you know, like, I mean, the, the animals and it, the, the list just goes on and on, you know, animals might get weird though here. It's a hunting <laughs> podcast, right? So we'll leave the, we'll leave the animals out of there, but. You know what I think yeah. would be fun to talk about? What? Uh, your new business and starting it, the challenges of running a business. Sure. The other thing that'd be kind of interesting, cause mm-hmm. I got a sense, I could be wrong, but I think there's a spirituality to, uh, to the martial arts and to you and what you do and how that guides the mental management process which we didn't even touch on. Mm-hmm. And I think that whole aspect would be a very interesting one to talk about, but maybe, um, maybe we just put a pin in this one for now and, uh, go get some food. Yeah, man. I'm off for a spirituality podcast down the line. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being on this podcast. Thanks,